0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message from Stonebridge United Methodist Church. We hope it encourages you to live and love like Jesus. All right, welcome, welcome everybody, welcome again. Um, my name's Dale Tampkin, one of the uh, one of the pastors here, and I'll be uh, uh, doing the message today. Jeff's a little under the weather, so pray for him. Uh, pray that he gets under that uh, way with that uh, out from under that. Uh, that flu bug. Uh, Also, a couple of, a note today, I had a couple of people ask me about this. I want to let you know, if you came around the the main entry of the church on the other side, you may have seen water coming out of a standpipe. We've had some work done over the weekend. The contractor's aware, the city's aware, so we're going to get that, uh, get that taken care of on Monday. In the meantime, as you walk by and observe the water, remember your baptism and be thankful. Um, Mm. We're in, the, we're in the second, uh, today's the second in a three-part series called Crucial Connections for a Vital Faith. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about the church as where we encounter the Holy Spirit, where we recharge and renew our realization of our connection with God and our connections with each other. You know, John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, claimed that, you know, our faith is not a solitary endeavor. We are not in this alone. He called it social holiness, Did you know you're being holy together today? Ours is a communal faith. Simply put, we rely on each other. And it's through and with the community of the faithful that we encounter the fullness, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. So today we're going to continue that conversation, exploring connections that characterize a vital faith, and we're going to focus on engaging with the world The text comes from Matthew's Gospel. Andy Prince is going to read it. Um, Open your Bibles if you have them with you or your digital devices so you can follow along. Hear now what the Spirit is saying to the church.
1: Hello, my name is Andy Prince, and I'll be reading today from Matthew chapter 25, verses 37 through 40. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. And from Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Andy, for reading the scriptures. Will you pray with me as we begin? Gracious God, open our hearts and our minds to the movement of your spirit among us this day. Amen. Well, first, I just want to thank you for being here because it is Super Bowl Sunday and you are probably missing some vital importance, some vital pregame by, uh, by joining us in worship, right? The pregame probably started like on Wednesday, right? And they were doing important things like interviewing the players and asking them if they were going to be a fruit. What kind of fruit would they be or something like that? So, thank you. Thank you for being here. Super Bowl Sunday. Over 100 million people are probably going to watch this in the United States and then another 50 million across the globe will turn in. So, tune in. So, the world will be watching, eh? And we're talking about the world today, so apropos. Preacher, you got it on today. All right, good, good, good. All right, have you heard about this, camp, this ad campaign? He gets us. Have you heard about this? Anybody? Witness? Yeah, okay, you've heard about it. It is a $100 million campaign designed to, quote, raise the relevancy and respect of Jesus. I got a note about this from the conference, you know, and, uh, from the North Texas conference. Sort of, there are ways for congregations to get involved. So it's very interesting. Very interesting. Pretty, you know. I think uh, I took a look at online to look at the ad, and the, the pr- production values are pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty good. Um, so if you watch the game, look, look. There, there are going to be a couple of these ads. So if you seriously, if you watch the game, um, I'd be interested in what you think about. The ads. So let me know if you if you see the ad, drop me a line, to, uh, send me a send me a text, um, and we'll uh, be interested to see about that. All right. Today's passages are from Matthew. So let's take a look at Matthew for a few minutes. Look at these passages. They're familiar, right? Familiar passages, both of them. And in both of these passages, Jesus is offering some fairly explicit instructions. The first passage from from, uh, from chapter 25 comes, this is the last, the last sort of, meta, uh, you know, it's not really a parable, but it's sort of the last statement of Jesus before we get into the crucifixion narrative. So that's the last thing. And then, of course, the second passage is the very end of Matthew. So, it is the final thing that Jesus says to the disciples. That first passage, well-known Final judgment. It's a metaphor. Final judgment where the king is sorting out the nations. Like the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And here, remember the separating factor, of course, is how did they treat the king? The king asks, did you feed me? Did you give me water? Did you clothe me? Did you welcome me? Did you visit me? And the poor goats. You know, it's always the goats, right? I mean, poor goats. And they say, well, when did we see you like this? If we only knew. And then the sheep, the lucky sheep, they're not lucky. They made their own luck here. The sheep had apparently looked after the least and the lost. You know, they didn't know it was the king either. But they acted. And the resolution of all this is in the punchline in verse 40, this time from the message the king's, Talking, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did, whatever you did one of these things to someone who was overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And as we read on, the consequence of this sorting of the sheep and the goats seems particularly dire because at the end of the chapter in verse 46, it says, Then those goats will be herded to their eternal doom but the sheep to their eternal reward. Now, if we think about this too much, we, we, we might find a little bit of troubling aspect to this. A little bit of works righteousness might sneak in. You know, works righteousness is this sort of thing about, well, you know, if I do enough, if I'm, if I'm good enough, then I get to be a sheep. Now, I, think, I don't think we want to go that direction this morning, so let's, you know, that's another sermon where we'll unpack that. But suffi- suffice to say that Jesus used this stark image to say, I'm serious about this. That was his way of saying, pay attention, listen up, this is important, everything I say is important, but this one, this last thing I'm going to tell you before the crucifixion is important. The second passage is one that I grew up calling the Great Commission. Anybody? Great Commission? Yeah, right. According to Matthew, final instructions. So remember what it says. Notice the order here. I'm going to turn my pages back. Go into all the nations, baptize them, and then teach them. First we baptize, then we teach. Hmm. And what do we teach? What's the teaching? What's the subject matter? Well, Jesus says, again from the message, instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. In other words, Jesus is saying... Teach them what I've, sh- what I've shown you about how to live. And who is the them? Teach them. Both of these passages use the word the nations. Some of your translations, if you look at it, might say the Gentiles, but the word, the Greek, is ethne. Ethne, if you think about it, it's the root for ethnic. And what it means is a, is a, is a, whole, a whole people all of a people. And here, we're talking about the world. The world that God loves. So as we face the world, the nations, the ethne, how do we bring these things together? These two commandments. Well, let's talk about Methodism for a minute because maybe this will give us some insights. You know, the Methodists had been... Um, We have a long history of acting in the world. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, addressed this early on when he said this, I look upon all the world as my parish. This is the work which I know God has called me to. We Methodists have a rich history of being active in the world. We have 52 hospitals. We have 95 universities. Many senior living centers, orphanages, clinics, food pantries, disaster relief. Um, UMCOR, anybody? Um, UMCOR, United Methodist Committee on Relief. We've led the fight against deadly disease, HIV, AIDS. If you've been around in the United Methodist Church for a while, maybe you remember No More Malaria. And we also have a rich history of weighing in on society's uh, issues. The early Methodists expressed their opposition to societal ills like slavery, smuggling. They talked about inhumane prison conditions, alcohol abuse, child labor. This was the industrial revolution. England was coming uh, becoming a, going from an agrarian society to an industrial society and people worked hard and and factories were not a great place to be. Wesley wanted to get to the root of things. He didn't just sort of superficially advocate. For example, Wesley, has a, he had a well-documented, uh, well-documented uh, aversion and sort of militating against uh, the use of alcohol. A lot of drunkenness at that time, and drunkenness was, you know, a scourge, bless you, to the, to the poor. But Wesley was known to have a beer or a glass of wine every so often. I don't know if he had cigars, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and one of the things that he, that he advocated against in terms of the distillers was that the distillers would, would use grain for their products, wheat and corn. That got diverted from the food supply. Thus prices were increased and the poor couldn't afford bread. Wesley went after root causes of problems. You know, the church, United Methodist Church, has a defined set of statements that guide this work. They're called the United Methodist Social Principles. I encourage you to go to the website, the United Methodist website, umc.org. Take a look at the social principles because they describe our work, big church, our work in the world in in specific contexts, like the environment, like the social realm, economics, politics. The reason I bring this up is I think the preamble to those statements is important. Those principles are important or is important. So let's take a look. The United Methodist Church believes God's love for the world is an active and engaged love, a love seeking justice and liberty. We cannot just be observers. So we care enough about people's lives to risk interpreting God's love, to take a stand, to call each of us into a response, no matter how controversial or complex, the church helps us think and act out of a faith perspective. Remember, last week, Pastor Jeff talked about practical divinity. Practical divinity. That was sort of Wesley's approach to life. Practical divinity. Well, this is a statement that describes practical divinity. How do we live by putting Christian belief into practice? Now, Wesley was not thought of as much of a theologian, but he had a very cogent, I'd say compelling theological argument for these works, good works. Wesley said these are, works, these are means of grace, just like communion is a mean of, means of grace. And what is that uh, that about? Well, a means of grace is a way, it's an ordinary thing, an everyday thing, that when we encounter it in the right environment, we experience the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit. So good works don't save us, but they do keep us attuned to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. As we do those things, we're aware. Good works are the evidence, not the cause. So think about a mission trip. Okay, let's make this practical. Anybody been on a mission trip anywhere? Just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyone ever heard the report? If you haven't been on a mission trip, heard the report of the folks that come back from the mission trip? If you think about those reports, yeah, thank you. If you think about those reports, this, w- this statement will invariably come up. The people that went will claim, you know, I got more out of this experience than I think the people we were helping. What's the source of that feeling? That that kind of warmth, that kind of satisfaction, not in a prideful way, but this sort of settled feeling that comes from having engaged in work like that. Could that be the Holy Spirit? Bishop William Willimon, in a book called This We Believe, the Core of Wesleyan Faith and Practice, said this, God graciously gives us means of grace that constantly feed our desire to do good in return for the good that God is doing among us and strengthen our ability to actually do some good. Good work, works by us are neither desirable nor possible apart from the constantly impinging, I don't get to say that word very often, I don't know about you, impinging, encouraging, and accompanying work of the living God. You know, Wesley had a similarly practical and earthbound view of salvation. He rode over a quarter of a million miles on horseback. That's a lot of horseback miles. Anybody, I mean, anybody ride horses on a regular basis? I don't know how many horses that was, but th- that's a lot of horseback, okay? And he preached 40,000 sermons, over 40,000. He took the word out to the people. He was often, often preaching in the open air. He preached in the market. He preached in the field. He preached in the cemeteries. And what he preached was that God's saving grace was available to everyone regardless of station. That may be a a little bit why he got crossways with the Church of England and they began closing pulpits to him. Wouldn't let him preach in the church. So he said, okay, I'll go out where the people are and preach to them that way. In his sermon, The Scripture Way of Salvation, Wesley, Wesley said that we are... We're certainly saved through faith, but not our faith in God, but God's faith in us. Salvation isn't something we do. It's something that God does. Wesley taught that salvation is a here and now experience of God's grace. He spoke of salvation in the present tense. We have been saved. We are saved. Part of this making disciples is to explain to people how loved they are by God. More important than explaining is showing them that by the way we love them. Here's what Wesley had to say about this. Ye are saved. Ye are saved. It is not something at a distance. It's a present thing, a blessing, which through the free mercy of God, ye are now in possession of. I love the ye. Don't you? I love the ye. All of this is by God's grace. And thus the journey begins the transformation that we are all undergoing, this moving on to Christian perfection, this thing that Jeff talked about last week, Pastor Jeff, Christian perfection. None of us will be perfect, but we have a goal, and the goal is to love perfectly as God loves us. And that only happens through the work of the Spirit. And what is the evidence of that work? Those works of mercy. So these two ways of facing the world are complementary. They reinforce each other. Now, since we're talking about the church and engaging in the world, crucial connections for a vital faith, we should probably talk about holy excavations. Holy excavations was a, was a, a... Uh, an exercise where we were talking about, um, really, where, you know, where does God intend for us to go? 30 30 folks from across the congregation spent a day in a structured, facilitated conversation. People were recruited from all across the congregation, you know, via email, via social media, and they spent a day in a structured, facilitated conversation The 30 people broke up into four groups. They discussed the questions, and they would reconvene and have a general discussion of what they talked about. Anybody here engaged in that? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. So there are a few of you here. Thank you. One of the questions dealt with God's purpose for Stonebridge. Specifically, the question was, "What is God's dream for our mission field?" In other words, how will we be engaged in the world? Where can we make a difference? Now, there was, a, there was some discussion on how do we define the mission field. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What is meant by mission field? And so the facilitator, uh, Scott Sharp, helped the, helped the folks there define it as those areas or situations where perhaps God's heart is breaking. So with that guidance, the group... Um, Began discussion and, and several interesting things came up. Where is God's heart breaking? Financial debt came up. We had a, you know I don't know if you know we had some vandalism here at the church. Some really awful stuff spray painted on the outside of the church. Really vile. Folks talked about this is interesting. The divisions between East and West McKinney. Now I'm from I'm from Denton, so you know I. Those of y'all been McKinney folk may want to tell me a little bit more about that, but. That was on their mind. Social media replacing actual relationships. Prescription drug use and addiction. Divorce and extramarital affairs. Fear of being the next school shooting. These were real conversations. Honest conversations. (laughs) The group also talked about the beginnings of this church as a congregation committed to reaching out to the non-churched and folks who were, well, let's just say they were nominally Christian. Today we would we would say reaching out to the nuns. Now I'm not talking about habit, okay? I'm talking about nun, none, N-O-N-E. And what that means is someone with no church affiliation, the nuns. They may be spiritual, but they're kind of going, on, going it alone. According to the Barna group, Barna, B-A-R-N A, group that does a lot of survey research about Christian life, many of the nuns are reluctant to affiliate with the church because the Christians they encounter seem overly judgmental. They seem to value being right in their beliefs over helping others make their own faith discoveries. And I'm not sure that a $100 million ad campaign is going to help with that. Another example of God's heart breaking. The day ended with group with the groups discussing next steps. What's going to happen next? What does the future hold for the church? And as we face forward, looking ahead, what will we be about here? And interestingly, the talk turned to joy. Reclaiming joy, looking forward with joy. Longtimers in the group recalled a familiar greeting around here. Welcome to Stonebridge, the most joyful place on earth. Hmm, yeah. So it seems like this group, that earlier in the day, group of you all, earlier in the day had cited the wandering of the children of Israel in the desert as their representative biblical narrative. Remember, Pastor Jeff said that too. Now they were looking forward, seeking joy maybe the joy of deliverance. And as Scott said in his report, for those who wandered in the desert, their hope was the promised land, and as for the poor in spirit, they're promised the kingdom of God. So this discussion really wasn't a sort of nostalgic, sort of pining for the way things used to be, you know, the good old days, which probably weren't that good, okay? We just remember the good stuff. This was a clear eyed grasp, grasping of the way things are, and hope for the way things could change. Joy. Where do we find it? Tom Wright is an English theologian. He's Retired Anglican bishop. He's a prolific writer. He's written a lot about Paul, lots of books about Romans. You might see his, his work under, the, under uh, his sort of formal writing name, N.T. Wright. Tom Wright. He's also got a nice, interesting, thought-provoking YouTube video. It's about 18 minutes long, so you might want to go take a look at it where he talks about the biblical source of joy. Wright's idea is that a significant source of joy in the biblical narrative is justice. Justice happens, according to Wright, when God sets things right. Events of justice are occasions for joy for God's people. The Hebrew word here for justice is mishpat, mishpat, it has several layers of meaning. It, you know, the, the obvious layer of meaning is a, is a judicial outcome. Justice occurs in the court. But it also means the restoration of things to the way they ought to be. Mishpat. Setting things right. Joy and justice. We see this in the Psalms. Psalm 98 celebrates the coming of the righteous God who makes things whole. From the message, sing to the Lord a new song. He has made a world of wonders. He's rolled up his sleeves to set things right. When he comes to set the world right, he'll straighten out the whole world. He'll put the world right and everyone in it. When justice happens, joy follows. We see it in the prophets. Isaiah 65, familiar chapter, tells of a restored, reordered world characterized by God's justice. Again, this is from the message. This is God talking. Pay close attention. I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos and pain are things of the past to be forgotten. Look ahead with joy and anticipate what I'm creating. When justice happens, joy follows. And this new set right creation began at the moment maybe of the most joyful event of all. Not maybe, certainly, the most joyful event of all. The happening that we mark with joy at the end of Lent. Jesus' victory over death. Amen? Yeah. You see, according to to right, God set things right at the resurrection. That's the beginning of the new creation. Jesus... Unjustly accused of wanting to be an earthly king, unjustly accused of fomenting rebellion, unjustly railroaded by a complicit religious establishment, overcame that most colossal injustice, dying ignominiously on a cross. He overcame that when God raised Jesus and said no to injustice and yes to life, life everlasting, life with him. So friends, joy and justice are inseparable. God's justice, his setting things right, is the source of joy eternal. When justice happens, joy follows. One more example. You know, today today's February 12th. This is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Yeah. You know, we've kind of mashed the birthdays together, or President's Day. We take... Washington's and Lincoln's and put them together and we have a day off coming up. But, uh, but today's his birthday. February is also the month when we pay particular attention to African American history. So maybe this is a timely example. You know, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. And with that, with that act freed the slaves across the Confederacy. He'd thought about signing it for a long time. It was a contentious, contentious issue within the, his cabinet. They didn't agree on whether it ought to be done or not. The war also was not going particularly well, but Lincoln had reached the conclusion that this move was needed to begin setting things right. And its signing, as you can imagine, brought widespread joy to the African-American community. Frederick Douglass, former slave, free man, said this about the day. The scene was wild and grand. Joy and gladness exhausted all forms of expression. From shouts of praise to joys and tears. I shall never forget that memorable night. I waited and I watched for the word of deliverance, which we have heard read today, and I'll never forget the outburst of joy and thanksgiving that rent the air. Yes, justice brought joy that New Year's Day. So friends, as we contemplate the work, our work as a church in the world, where will we reclaim our joy? How will we seek to make things right in our mission field, just as our Methodist forebears did and continue to do. How will we seek to bring the unchurched and the nominally Christian to realize their right relationship with God, putting things right, by grasping a salvation that is here and now? Holy Excavations was the beginning of a conversation about our future as a church. And it's a conversation that's framed by four questions. God, what is the concrete difference you're calling us to make? What will it look like if we are faithful to our calling? How will we know if we've succeeded in responding to your call? And who will help us walk the journey that these three questions invite us to travel? Friends, let us carefully And prayerfully consider these questions for each of us has something to contribute as we move forward as a church. Vital faith in action means we're connected to God, engaged in and with the world, sustained by a committed community as we turn our face towards disorder and chaos and say with God's help, through God's grace, sustained by God's love, we will work for justice. Because if we want to restore the joy, we need to work for justice. Let it be so. Will you pray with me? Gracious God of justice, work in us and through us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain in us willing spirits. Empower us to teach transgressors your ways so that the world will return to you. Lead us on this journey as your church. Your church that seeks to do your will, that loves you, that seeks to be your instruments of peace as you continue to set things right. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonebridge United Methodist Church. You are invited to worship with us every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more information, visit our website, mysumc.org. Have a blessed day.